This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. 
Learn more at marines.com. Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to this very special episode of the Scene Vault Podcast. You know, from day one, this podcast has been about preserving NASCAR history, and there's a good reason for that. The fact of the matter is, our legends aren't always going to be with us to share the memories of their extraordinary careers. And that was certainly the case with David Pearson. When I saw the news on Facebook that he had died, it was like a true loss in the family. I didn't know... David that well. I interviewed him once, but in those three hours that we spent together that day at his shop in South Carolina, man, what a respect that I got for him that day. He is a true NASCAR legend. You know, I'm not into naming a greatest driver in NASCAR history because the fact is there's no way to absolutely quantify it. You cannot compare eras. You can't compare Lee Petty to Richard Petty. You can't compare Richard Petty to Dale Earnhardt. You can't compare Dale Earnhardt to Jeff Gordon. You can't compare Jeff Gordon to Jimmy Johnson. And you certainly can't compare David Pearson to basically anybody. Let's just say that he was one of the greatest NASCAR drivers of all time and leave it at that. And joining me for this episode... I have just an incredible panel of people to talk about David Pearson and his legacy and maybe some of their memories of him. First of all, as always, with me is my co-host here on the Scene Vault podcast, Steve Wade. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Rick, how about yourself? I'm doing awesome. Also joining us is Jimmy Mack, Jim McLaurin, (laughs) from the great and wondrous town of Columbia, South Carolina. Jimmy Mack, how are you doing? Doing fine, but I'm in Pontiac, okay? <laughs> <laughs> okay, didn't mean to cross any lines there. All right. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, we have NASCAR Hall of Famer Leonard Wood. Leonard, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you for having me on. Leonard, first of all, I want to express my condolences to you because Obviously, David Pearson was a huge, huge, huge part of the Wood Brothers racing story. Tell me what he meant to you guys. Well, he's just, uh, uh, you know, uh, when you get ready to set the car up, you know, uh, sometimes you have a driver, you know, and you might uh, uh, have to tell him, you know, he needs to run a little high or whatever. Uh, But when you had David Pearson, when you set the car up, uh, first of all, if you wasn't running, you, you might as well work on it because he he knew how to get around every track there was, and he knew the line to take. You didn't have to worry about whether he needs to run high, low, or wherever. But he'd have a certain line he'd take if the car was right, and then of course if the car wasn't right, he knew how to make the best line for the setup that he had. So. Uh, what you had to do is just worry about working on your car. You didn't ever have to worry about whether the driver knew where, where, what line to take or whatever. So it was just so rewarding uh, and so easy to set, set a car up for David Pearson. Well, I do have to ask, did anybody on the team ever try to tell David Pearson how to drive? And if so, how did that work out for you? 
Well, that wasn't Mark too good. Of course, you know, you can tell if a man's doing the right thing, you know. So uh, he just uh, was so good on how to enter a corner, exit a corner. Just, uh, and he, he helped several drivers, you know, uh, how to get around Darlington. And, uh, I remember he told uh, Ricky Craven, uh, was asking him how to get around Darlington. And, of course, Ricky was uh, doubting. Uh, what he was saying because he could drive farther here or there, you know, than what David said. But he said, well, I'm going to try what he said anyway. Well, he said, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, oh, he was a cagey somebody. He'd never let nobody know what how good he really was until time to come to do it. And, uh, he would pace himself first half of the race, and then the last half, he'd, he'd start moving towards the front if he wasn't already in front. Hey, Rick, let me add to that. The very first conversation I had with David Pearson, he said almost exactly the same things that Leonard just said. Uh, he said that the, the Wood Brothers are so meticulous about car preparation, and uh, Leonard, working on engines, was also wanted to, to have nothing but perfection. And when that happened and he got in the car, he said it wasn't a matter of my skills or anything like that. The car was so comfortable wherever I could put it. And everybody used to say that I was just slacking off and hanging back until time to make a move. Well, I was. <laughs> because it was not difficult to drive that car at all. And that is that is why I, I give them the biggest credit for what we're doing. I talk, He talked to me in 1973 and said those very same words. See, sometimes people think they got something left, you know, mm -hmm. but he he knew exactly how much he had left. And uh, he would go out and uh, always qualify 30 to 50, 100 quicker than he practiced. Always. Huh. And all years he drove for us, he never qualified slower than he practiced. But he would save it, and he, he knew how to uh, put it in place when time comes. But some people, you know, drive us uh, uh, practice one speed, and then I'm going to try a little harder than to mess up, you know. But yeah, he never he never messed up qualifying. And not only that, but he was excellent in the style of racing that Leonard just described where he would uh, pace himself in the first part of the race and then bring the car on during the second part of the race and just outrun everybody. Well, up in the press box, we were fully aware of this. You could see it. You could see it. And so when he started to pick up the pace and move on up through the field, we'd all nudge each other and say, hey, guess what? The Wood Brothers just made a magic chassis change. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was, it was very obvious. We was at Michigan one one race, and uh, he was a half lap back. And of course, he kind of you know lots of times he would pace himself and uh, and plan on caution so that he'd save his car. And then you know down to the end, if you take care of your car, your engine the valve springs is not uh, killed, and the, you got a better engine, uh, you got a better race car to race with. But he was a half lap back and had a caution flag. And uh, we come in pitted, and everybody pitted. We'll come back out. Uh, we was, uh, uh, I think, probably 20 car lengths behind Darrell Walter going into the last lap. 
at Michigan, went across the finish line, one lap to go, and he passed him going up the backstretch. <laughs> <laughs> so, and like like I said, he was running, he was he was half lap back. So uh, then he turned on something that nobody knew he had, you know. <laughs> Johnny, it upsets the, uh, the driver, make a driver overdrive when he finds out this guy's running faster than he thought. Yeah, they don't call him the silver fox for nothing, that's for sure. Yeah, you know about the time that uh, first, well, he was running, uh, he was a rookie, and uh, Ray Fox uh, had Buddy Baker drive for him in the, in the first World 600. And, uh, I mean, the... Uh, was one of the no, it's the it's 1961 won the first one, mm-hmm. and uh, so Buddy couldn't drive Ray's car, and he's looking for a driver. But Moss says, "Well, won't you put David Pearson in it?" And, and Ray Fox says, "Who in the world is that?" <laughs> <laughs> I remember that story. And, uh, and uh, uh, Bud says, "Well, you'll find out." Well, he goes and wins the race because by seven laps. Uh, a lot of the competition maybe fell out some of it and it goes on to win two more super speedways that year which is uh you know three as much as anybody's ever won in the season and I remember the, the uh the news commentator says uh, i know you want to thank your crew says uh, uh you know you're proud of your pit crew you want to thank them all he says you see, at this last minute, he, they put him in there, and he says, don't know none of them. Typical David. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say enough about the man. I mean, he's just so good, and he's just so good for the Wood Brothers, and, uh, and uh, we certainly wouldn't have the history we've got if it hadn't been for David Pearson. He won 43 races for us. One year he won. One level, not eighteen, and that's, that's incredible. That is incredible. As a matter of fact, uh, David Pearson from nineteen sixty six to sixty nine won forty four races and three championships. Now, if he went to the retirement home and sat on the rocking chair on the front porch, he'd still be in the Hall of Fame with those numbers. But then he comes back with the Wood Brothers, and from seventy three to seventy six, they win thirty one races, and he runs. Only half of the schedule at most in each one of those seasons. Now that's that that to me is fantastic. Well, it just uh, you know uh, uh, we'd watched him race for years. You know we knew how good he was, and so when we got a chance to to have him come on board. Uh, we were just uh, very uh, thrilled about that. And, right. And I remember the first first race he drove for us. He sat on pole and uh, won the race. And before the race, he said, Dick Hutchinson told me, says, now he'll go out and run uh, faster qualifying than he does uh, practice. And uh, so before the race, before he qualified, he said, now nah, I might run 30 hundreds quicker. <laughs> well, he did. <laughs> but uh, what he would do, he'd, he would practice uh, one turn and then another turn. And he, he just didn't know, want anybody to know how much he could do. And then when he turned the heat on, you know, it kind of uh, yeah. excited the guys. That opened up that my eyes. Jimmy Mack, you posted yes. the other day on Facebook about a pretty cool story that you had with David where, of all places, you got to do a ride-along around Darlington with David yes, Pearson. Tell me about that. That had to have been just an amazing experience. That, that 
was the best day of my entire 25 years of covering racing. Uh, back in those days, uh, I think Hunter was still the president at Darlington. Jim Hunter was still the president at Darlington. And I believe Russell Branham was still there. And Russell absolutely worshipped David Pearson. And Pearson would do stuff for, for Russell that he wouldn't do for a lot of other people. So they had a they had a, a media day and invited David down. And uh, part of the deal was that the guys in the press would get to take a couple of laps with him. Well, that that was that got me to Darlington, no problem. But uh, we were riding along. We got I got in. And, you know, I, earlier that summer, I had done a ride with uh, Ted Musgrave at Charlotte. They take it easy with us in the car. It ain't easy for us. <laughs> Musgrave kind of scared me a little bit. Got to Darlington, got to riding with Pearson, and he's riding along there, one hand in that part of the way, <laughs> chewing gum, just having a high old time, and... By the time he got down to me, I think he was pretty well tired of toting press around, so he may may have had a little mad going for him. <laughs> but he got out there, and buddy, we dug out, and I know that uh, in in reality he was probably a foot from the wall coming off <laughs> the old turn four. Yeah. But to me, I would have loved to have had a sheet of paper just to try to put between that car and the wall because that's how close he got to it. And he's just over the casual... <laughs> Just riding along, man, and I was eating it up. And we got through, and uh, I did a, a follow-up column the day or two after. And uh, I think the lead was I had I rode with uh, Ted Musgrave at Charlotte and rode with David Pearson at Darlington. I said, Charlotte ain't Darlington, and Ted, no offense, but you ain't David <laughs> that was oh. an absolute thrill and it's still the best day well one of the best days of my life i reckon but certainly the best day i've had race you know leonard we've already talked about the 1973 season and when you look at the numbers from that year the first couple of races of the year you finished 22nd at riverside with a clutch, you yeah. finished 33rd, the Daytona 500 with a blown engine. Then later in the year, you fell out at Martinsville with a rear end. You crashed at Charlotte. In the other 14 races, you finished no lower than third and won 11 of those. So basically, in 1973, you guys either won or you fell out of the race. What did you guys have that year? Well, I mean, you know, uh, you got to have a good race car, uh, but uh, uh, that was a thrill having David Pearson. You get your car right, and uh, you, if you have no bad luck, uh, he yeah. he would win the race. I mean, that's just, uh, you can just count on that. I mean, uh, uh, all the time he wouldn't win the race, he was something wrong with the car, or the car wasn't good enough. Uh but if you got an equal car, you was home free to win the race, providing you didn't have any, any luck. And, you know, it's very rewarding uh, to have a driver that you know that all you got to do is worry about getting the car right. And uh, you can just bet on him doing the rest. I mean, and he, he watched ahead. He looked ahead. Uh, uh, 
you know, uh, some people thought he was so lucky, you know, he didn't have accidents. Well, there's a reason. He, he looked ahead and he could just sense danger. Lots of times uh, he'd see two guys battling, you know, and he maybe could outrun them, but he'd say, well, uh, that's okay. They're going to wreck in the next couple of three laps. Sure enough, they would. <laughs> and uh, he's just an amazing person, great a great personality. Uh, we had so much fun going to dinner together and racing together. Uh, I went in the Holiday Inn down at uh, Atlanta. Him and Barney Hall was already there. And so I come in, sit down, and uh, the uh, David says, now the waitress can't hear good. You're going to have to speak up. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I you know, was wondering about that, so I did speak a little louder than normal, and the waitress says, well, I'm not deaf. And, of course, Barney and uh, David just busted out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> but we was always picking at each other, and I think that's uh, one of the reasons it made it work so good, you know. It, uh, it, uh, I would compliment him on how good he was, and uh, because he, he had great compliments back, you know. Yeah. But uh, it was just a great experience. Just uh, wouldn't think the world. I wouldn't uh, just thank thank the good Lord that uh, he came on board and spent that much time with us. Yeah. Leonard's touch on the relationship that these guys had about talking together, having dinner together, laughing together, and things of that nature. No one in the media, anyway thought anything like that back in 1973 when David was really winning. Uh, the woods were considered to be very quiet types, and they were. And uh, I know especially Glenn was uh, not too, well, let's put it this way. If the media never said a word to him, he'd be fine. <laughs> but, and, and they thought it was the same way with David. A lot of people did. I found out personally that David was not that type of guy. Wasn't resident at all. I had my first interview with him. And he was terrific, very friendly, very outgoing. Mike Henry can tell you the same story because it happened to him two years later. Now, as far as the Wood Brothers, I got to know them a whole lot. Getting able to talk to them in an interview uh, up in their shop. Now, this was set up by Dick Thompson over at Martinsville Speedway because he wanted a yeah. program store in the woods. So I went up there. And uh, <laughs> I kind of scared because the first question Glenn asked Dick when he called him about it is, how long is this going to take? <laughs> so <laughs> I got up there. You know, they were very pleasant guys. They told me everything I know, asked stupid questions, but they answered them. And then Leonard disappeared for a minute. And then he came back. I don't know if Leonard remembers it, but he came back and he had... A box full of carburetors. <laughs> and he tossed them on the floor. And he looked at me and said, you see what we have to put up with? <laughs> so I, I found out right then that Leonard was nobody's uh, reticent type of guy. And, I, and, and I'll and i tell him to his face, ever since that time, uh, I've enjoyed his company. He's been friendly, he's been outgoing, he's been informative. And whatever the people thought of the words as a secret clan back in 1973, along with David Pearson, was simply not true. Not then and not ever. Leonard, as good as you guys were doing on the racetrack, was there ever any talk or consideration to actually going for the championship, or was that just not as important back in that era? Uh, they, we was uh, uh, 
people was wanting us to run all the time, and and I didn't want to because really I, okay. I was doing all the work I wanted to do. <laughs> That's exactly what I would have said to <laughs> Well, we didn't we didn't have a bunch of men working for us. And, yeah. Uh, you got to increase the number of men, and and I, of course I was happy doing the way we was doing, and then uh, of course uh, along in nineteen eighty seven it was uh, when Kyle Petty came on board. Uh, that's when it decided it was going to have to start running for the championship. And uh, I think it uh, uh, maybe in nineteen seventy three. I'm not sure where we finished in the points, but I'm thinking we finished in the top ten, only running eighteen races. Would that be correct? Uh, no, sir. I think you wound up thirteenth that year. There was one year I'm thinking that we run in the top ten and didn't run all the races. Actually, now that you mention it, in 1974, in 1974, third. Yeah, 1974, you finished third. 1976, you won ten races and finished ninth. So, 1974, you were pretty doggone close, just running 19 races. <laughs> Yeah, I I remember we was running uh, in 1976. You know, we and I mentioned this uh, in another interview that uh, he'd already won five or six races, and Bobby Allison was saying that he locked them. <laughs> and of course, David uh, was a little offended by that. He said, "Well, I must be doing something right." <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it don't, uh, he just run 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 them in the ground. Donnie was on pole and he run him in the ground. He needed relief. Bobby got relief for him and run him in the ground. And then there's all down there in the uh, shower room about, you know, getting oxygen and stuff. <laughs> he just prances through there like he just got out uh, starting a race. <laughs> let, him know, let him know he's ready to go. Uh, now, David, uh, he... He knew what he was doing. He knew how to win a race, and uh, he knew how to win championships and uh, take care of the car. He was just, he was just all around driver. Yeah, Richard Petty said David Pearson was the greatest race driver he ever saw, and David Pearson said, "Well, I would agree with that." <laughs> <laughs> said he wasn't going to disagree with it. Yeah. <laughs> He and, he and Richard loved to uh, race each other. They'd rather race each other than any other one. Absolutely. Uh, well, Leonard, you've mentioned 1976, and you've also mentioned Richard Petty. So the next natural question that has to be asked is about the 1976 Daytona 500 and that very famous finish. Were you able to see the start of the crash? I would assume that you were not from the pit. No, I didn't. Uh, See, I have Eddie uh, on the radio because I couldn't understand the radio as good as he could, and he'd relay the message to me. Okay. Uh, I would tell him what to tell David or whatever. But, no, I couldn't see nothing. But uh, the last, uh, coming up on the last lap, he come on the radio and says, I'm running wide open, that's all I can do. Wow. <laughs> Which, if he ever said that, he always won. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and so, sure enough, he passes uh, Richard going into three over there. And, uh, and then I hear the crowd just screaming and hollering. I know something's happened. And uh, 
first thing I saw was Richard Petty's car coming backwards up against the wall. <laughs> yeah. Didn't, didn't see David. And looked down on the inside. He's playing around in the grass. And he keyed the radio and says, it be hit me. <laughs> while he's spinning around while he's spinning around in the grass that's what he said and, uh, uh, then uh, Richard he comes sliding all the way across the, come through the grass thought he was going to slide across the finish line he stopped 50 feet short and David just chuckled right on up through the grass and across the finish line he went is it true that David kept his foot in the clutch? I mean, is that what kept his engine alive? We've always heard that. David kept his motor running uh, half wide open while he was in the, spinning around. In the yeah, that's pretty much what he had to do. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it didn't die. Right. And then they, somebody asked him, was he mad? <laughs> he said, no, but I was getting ready to be. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Yeah, I think uh, Richard and David uh, made each other better at uh, the racing each other like they did. That uh, yeah, and like I said, each one would rather beat the other one than any other driver. I think. That's right. That's a big difference between Richard and Bobby in uh, 1972. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't, wasn't a whole lot nice about that one. Yeah, well, uh, we was already out of the race on that one. <laughs> yeah. It always amazed me about Eddie and Pearson. Was it that they almost seemed like the exact opposites, but but they were very much alike. I think Pearson definitely would rather not be bothered after a race, and it seemed like Eddie would hunt up people to sign autographs for sometimes. <laughs> but, but they were kind of the yin and yang of racing. And I definitely think that those two did more for racing when they were in their prime than any other drivers uh, in racing. Yeah, I agree. They were perfect foils for each other, and they loved competing against each other. And that that just made racing a whole lot better. One time, uh, the crew, you know, was kind of... Encouraging David to sign some autographs, you know, or something. They wanted him to sign some autographs, and so one 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 day, they uh, after a race, he just crawled up on the back of the truck and uh, started signing autographs for everybody to come by. He he would sign the autograph for him, and see, they was wanting to load the car, and <laughs> they couldn't load the car because he was sitting on on the truck, back of the truck. And uh, they, they were wanting him to get off then. <laughs> he wouldn't do it. He just kept signing autographs. <laughs> wow. You know, it can honestly be said that there are rivalries that exist between race drivers today. And there certainly was that one between Richard and David. But don't think, I don't think that any of these rivalries of today have re- produce the mutual respect those two had back then. That's what I say. Yeah, I think you you know, when you uh when you race hard against uh, uh another person, another driver or whatever, you you learn to respect them. The better they are, the more you respect them. That's right. That's right. And, uh that to me that's just the way it works. Uh, 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 a team that's hard to beat and and maybe you uh race hard against them you know but uh, like 
like today, uh, Richard Petty and Dale Inman and Maurice uh, and Kyle are just as good of friends as we got. And uh, I thoroughly treasure that and respect it. Yes, sir. Leonard, you guys won – how many straight polls did you guys win at Charlotte? Wasn't it something like 12 straight polls at Charlotte? We won – we won 11 straight polls with David, and David uh, ended up winning that year uh, and made him 12 in a row. Okay, all right, and okay. Then, then Neil Bonnet came on board, won two more in a row, which made us 13 in a row. <laughs> Good gracious. At Charlotte. And I think we got 20 or uh, 21 polls total. What in the world made you guys so good during qualifying at Charlotte? Because it seems like, I mean, why do you even have qualifying other than to maybe figure out who's not going to be in the race? What made you guys so good there? Well, it, uh, uh, one of them was David Pearson. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's what I've been told. That's what I've been told. And then, uh, and then uh, uh, we used uh, – I used uh, – we use uh, would measure the tires. We use tire stagger and wedge, and uh, and nobody did that. Uh, worked with wedge and stagger back in those days, and uh, that was one of the keys. But the, the big key was David Pearson because he'd come in and said, "I lost it," and but he was on pole. <laughs> and uh, a, a number of people could drive your car and 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 not lose it. It'd be twentieth. But uh, I don't know at the times he said, but I lost it. And, uh, <laughs> of course, if uh, if he was a little loose, he would figure that out in the first uh, coming to the green. And then uh, uh, he would compensate for that and still be on pole. Yeah. That's and incredible. you put the car. That's what I was told. Oh, yeah. It, it was a, a hump down there that they removed uh, – Removed the hump trying to uh, keep him from winning the pole. And David told me he worked on the wrong turn. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Leonard, 1979, you guys go to Darlington and you have a pit stop problem and wind up going your separate ways. How hard was that on the team? Yeah, yeah it was the biggest mistake we ever made. Uh, yeah. And the fact is, uh, we just uh, uh, smoothed it over, and uh, I was calling him up and telling him what we're going to run Martinsville with, and uh, and just going to forget it and uh, going about our racing, you know. And and the sponsor stepped in and said that no, we'd done gone too far and, and didn't want us to do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't. Have, it wouldn't have went through. Wow. Yeah. Nobody knew that, I don't guess. Yeah. No, they didn't. Everybody guessed at what went on. and uh, uh, No, but it was, uh, the, no. the sponsor stepped in and said we couldn't do it. Yeah, uh, nobody yeah. knew that. I guarantee it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, uh, uh, if David was alive, he could tell you that I called him up had a telephone conversation telling him what kind of transmission gear was going to run and everything. Uh-huh. Wow. Hmm. Now, can you imagine yeah. what you guys and David had might have done after 79 if you were still together. I, I've often well, asked we, myself that question. We thought we thought he was wanting to quit, uh, uh, number one, uh, you know, talking to him. But uh, he, he found out he didn't really want to quit. No way. He went and got in uh, Ron Osterlund's car 
and won the Southern 500. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, after that, and Neil uh, drove the car. David wasn't there on Saturday evening to practice, so they wanted Neil to get in the car and shake it down. And Neil said, you won't have to worry about David tomorrow, Solution can't drive it. And he won the race and didn't turn a screwjack. <laughs> <laughs> so that's telling you, he, he could run a free setup. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that many times. He, he could run a free setup and wouldn't be loose. So therefore, the car's rolling free through the corner. And a free-rolling car through the corner is going to run faster. So you can run a taller gear. And then he yeah. would run a taller gear. And then he would back off early and let it float into the corner, you know, uh, because it didn't slow down much. And, uh, and then pick your throttle up and just blow you away down straight away. <laughs> Leonard, when I sat down with David at his shop several years ago, I asked him the question. I said, most people would consider you one of the two or three greatest drivers in NASCAR history. And I said, where would you rank yourself? And without even blinking, he said, number one. (laughs) He said, if you don't consider yourself the best driver that ever was, you might as well just stay at home. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, if you think you can't do it, you can't. Uh, But he did. He had the most self-confidence any human I ever seen. And wow. Just, uh, and I remember he told me when he started out driving, said he got to looking around Fireball and all those guys. And he says, he says, he says I'm just good as they are. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him telling me that. But but he did have, uh, he didn't, um, he didn't worry about anybody if he had a good car. How would you want David to be remembered? He was one of the best ever. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yep. No argument here <laughs> from somebody who has been personally escorted around Arlington Raceway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you're just showing off now. You're just bragging. <laughs> That's the truth. And I'm going to brag about it until I can't brag no more. Last time I saw David was at Darlington. It's been a few years ago. I had no opportunity to see him since. Uh, and... Um, in a way, I'm glad I didn't. He went into declining health. But in any case, he was on television with me, and we were talking about Darlin and his successes. And he'd say, now, you go away in this turn here, and you do that. And you come out of this one, and you do that. And the best way to get out of this track when the race is over is go through the Pearson Grandstand. <laughs> 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 I think you're right out. <laughs> he was great. He was terrific. So he was a leader in the race after the race, too? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, awesome Steve do you have anything else I just want to add one last thing for my part as I referenced to earlier as great as David was with the Wood Brothers the indication of how great really great he was as a race driver is what he did before he ever joined that team Yeah, the championships the victories I said earlier and I meant it if he had stopped racing in 1970 he'd still be in the Hall of Fame either on the first or second ballot. It should have been on the first ballot. But he would have been. He would have been. Instead, he moved on, and a whole new era in racing began when the woods just seared themselves into NASCAR lore, and David is a huge part of that. I tell you, he's one of the greatest. Everybody says it, but this is a fact. The numbers prove it. The people who knew him prove it. His personality proves it. He was one of the greatest. 
Jimmy Mack, do you have anything else for Leonard? Nothing other than to just congratulate him for having a good sense to hire David Pierce. <laughs> that's, that's the smartest move the Wood Brothers ever made. And they made Well, he, he, he done. He sure put uh, made the Wood Brothers a strong team. And, uh, and uh, I just uh, uh, think many times that... Uh, uh, Pearson and the Wood Brothers uh, together was one uh, one great uh, racing career. I mean, he won 43 races in all of the time uh, that he went, was with us. And uh, it just, uh, I just can't thank him enough, can't say enough about how good he really was. Awesome. Awesome. Steve, thank you. Yes, sir. Jimmy Mack, thank you. And Leonard Wood, it is an honor to have you on this show. I truly do appreciate it. Thank you you so much. And my uh, thoughts and prayers go out to the Pearson family. And I'd like them to know what uh, I thought the world of him. And he he, uh, he seemed to think a whole lot of me. And I uh, just treasure the friendship and the racing career we had with him. Hey, if you got time, I got one one more thing to add. Sure. When Larry was racing, I think it was his first win. I believe it was his first win at Darlington, anyway. And David was there and was in the pits the whole time. But at the end of the race, everybody looked around and couldn't find David Pearson. And David figured out that if he stuck around, the story was going to be about david pearson's son oh so wow mostly mostly talking to david pearson about it yeah and he didn't want to take that moment away from his boy so he left i thought that was the coolest thing i'd ever seen yeah and that right there is what it meant to be david pearson right. absolutely guys thank you so much i truly do appreciate it you're welcome thank you, man. Thank okay you, all right thank you for having us. okay yeah. thank you thank you rick